I'm reading Romans 11, 1 through 6. I ask, then has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the, bowed the knee to Baal. So to, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us through your word plainly and clearly and give us ears that hear and eyes that see and hearts that will receive what you have to say to us. Soft hearts that can change. Let us not walk out of here the same way that we came in. Please teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we dip back into Romans, into the passage that Kendall just read for us, I want you to get your Bible or a Bible. There should be one in the pew if you don't have one with you. I want you to turn to the table of contents. We're going to be talking about Israel today, the Jewish people. We're going to be talking about them in the upcoming weeks as well. I want you to see in your table of contents all the books of the Bible laid out for you. For just a moment before we dig into this text. So you see Genesis there. First book. Everybody with me so far? Good. Now trace down with your finger until you see the book of Esther. Okay, all those books between Genesis and Esther. All those books are basically, I'm speaking very generally now, are basically history books. They're either big history of of the entire nation of Israel or they're zoomed in history about individuals within Israel. Now the reason I want you to see this is to just remind you who, is, who are all these books about in terms of the people? Israel. It's mainly the history of Israel. Okay, so after Esther comes Job. Trace your finger from Job down to Song of Solomon. Okay, those are what would be called wisdom literature. Um, the book of Job is a series of conversations, sort of philosophical conversations back and forth. Psalms are uh, the poems and the songs that they used in worship. Proverbs is uh, just wisdom, basically, wise sayings. Ecclesiastes is another sort of philosophical book. Song of Solomon is another sort of philosophical book. Now, who do you think these books were written by and for and to primarily? The Jewish people. Okay? So the history, the wisdom. Okay, now find Isaiah right after Song of Solomon. And trace your finger all the way down through the rest of the Old Testament. To Malachi. Okay. Generally speaking, again, these are all prophets. These are books that are uh, full of prophecy where God sent a prophet to go talk to people on his behalf. 
What do you think most of these books are dealing with? What people? Yeah, Israel. Okay, so pretty much the whole Old Testament. You have a little bit at the beginning of Genesis that's talking about the whole world. You know, he created the whole world and everything in it and all the people in it. But by halfway through this first book of the Bible, Genesis, he has selected Abram, who would become Abraham, to be the beginning of his special chosen people. Okay, now, New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books. Those are biographies of someone very important. Can you tell me who? Jesus, that's right. You see, all these books in the Old Testament were pointing forward to a Messiah that was going to come, that was going to save the day, that was going to save God's people from their sins, was going to deliver them. He's here now, and these are his biographies. Jesus was Jewish. He was Israel's Messiah. Okay, and then Acts is the history, that comes right after John, is the history of the, the early church as Christianity began to explode and spread. And here is where we get our clearest and first real practical glimpse of God starting to include what's known as Gentiles, a.k.a. the rest of us, pretty much everybody in this room. And then all after Acts, you have Romans, which is where we've been for about 16 years. You can trace your finger down from Romans all the way down to Jude. Generally speaking, those are all letters written to churches or individuals trying to explain Jesus, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Now, you'll have to flag me down if my mic's distracting because I can switch to the hand mic. And then Revelation is the book of prophecy in the New Testament about when Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is coming back. So my point in showing you all this, this Bible that we love so much really is primarily a Jewish book. So it may seem foreign to be spending so much time talking about Israel, but man, the Bible sure spends a lot of time talking about Israel. It's extremely central to our faith. And it's crucial that we understand who they were, what God's doing with them. So I wanted you to see that before we dig back into Romans 11, 1 through 6. The problem we're dealing with is these people, all, all of the momentum of Scripture is about God's special chosen Israel. And yet when Jesus came, by and large, they rejected him. How can this be? This is a very serious question. So the question we deal with today is, yes, it's established that Israel has rejected God in his clearest manifestation, Jesus. The question today is, has God rejected Israel? So I want to read it again with all this in mind. Romans 11, 1 through 6. I ask then, he just established that Israel has rejected God. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So has God rejected Israel? No. God has absolutely, definitely not rejected Israel. He says it as plainly as possible. I asked then in verse 1, has God rejected his people? By no means. That's a very emphatic way of saying no, no, absolutely not. So what we have next is Paul gives two simple proofs that God has not rejected Israel. And then this punch at the end about grace. So we're going to look at the two proofs and we're going to meditate on this grace thing that he adds in there on the end. So even though the Jews rejected God, God has not rejected Israel. Do you remember how Israel rejected God through Romans? I'll read it to you, just so we're on the same page. Back in chapter 9, we'll start at verse 30. This is just to refresh our memories of, of how Israel rejected God. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as I have written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So summarized, they pursued the law and rejected grace. And they worked in a religious self-righteousness rather than receiving the gift righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's basically what went down. That's how they rejected him. It was as though God got down on one knee with an engagement ring and said, will you be my people? Can I give you everything? And they grabbed the ring, tossed it aside, and presented God with a business contract and said, we'll do these things, you do these things. Now, some of you who are married, I don't know how you proposed, but imagine when you propose to your bride, if that's how it happened. We have some assertive women in our church. It might have been the other way. I don't know. When you proposed, imagine her saying, "Eh, that's nice. Listen, here's a contract of how this is going to be. I'm going to do these things. You know, I'll, you know, cook, I'll wash dishes. You've got to do your part. You've got to take care of these things. Sign here, initial here, initial here. Make sure to date it. Here's the notary. Can you sense how that just kills it? It just kills it. It just kills a relationship. That's, in essence, what happened between God and Israel. So, but the fact is, God's love for them is not deterred by their rejection. God has not rejected Israel because of this. Remember last week at the very end in verse 21, it says, But of Israel, God says, All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. 
His hands are, are outstretched. He still loves his people. God's love is undeterred by rejection. Now follow that to its full extent. That means that godly love is undeterred by rejection. That means the love that we receive from God is it cannot be stopped by rejection. He doesn't stop loving us if we start rejecting him. Once we receive that kind of love, we're free to give that kind of love to other people. The kind of love that that isn't squelched by rejection. You follow the train of thought there? Once we're given that that pool of love, we now have a new resource to love people in a way that's just supernatural. It's impossible for people to love this way. We can love people in such a way that even if they don't accept it, reject it, throw it back in our face, we can continue to love them. That's a godly sort of love. It's a supernatural thing. That's what Jesus was talking about in John. Don't, have, don't flip there. I'm just going to read it real quick. John 13... 34 through 35. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. See, the the love we have for people is what differentiates us. It's a different kind of love. It's a godly sort of love. There's a strength to it. We get a glimpse of God's sort of love in this passage. So as we move along, think about the people that you love. Is there anybody that you have cut off your grace, your compassion toward because they've rejected you? Okay, so let's go to the two proofs that God... Are y'all hearing this too or am I just hearing it? Okay, I don't know what's going on. If it gets distracting, let me know. Just some sort of subtle signal will do. Okay, so we're going to move on to the two proofs that he gives that Israel has not been rejected. We're not going to spend a ton of time on these two. They're pretty straightforward. Um, the first proof that God has not rejected Israel is Paul himself. He says, uh, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Real quick. What do you picture when you picture an Israelite, a Jew? What do you picture? Do you picture beards and robes and the sort of people in uh, the movies that crucified Christ? Do you picture that? Do you picture black and white photos of the horrific injustice of the Holocaust? Do you picture that? Do you picture black hats and... The side curls, and is that what you picture when you picture an Israelite, a Jew? Or do you picture someone like Paul? Do you picture a mighty warrior for God, for Jesus Christ, like Paul? Because Paul was a Jew. Let me read to you his uh, Jewish resume from Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, he says, uh, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So proof number one that God has not rejected the Jewish people, Paul. There's at least one that God hasn't rejected. Uh, Paul, the one that God worked through to plant so many of our very first Christian churches. The first, the great missionary, the one who wrote the majority of the books in the New Testament. So clearly God has not rejected all of Israel. Is my mic distracting you? It's distracting me, sorry. Okay, I'm not going to bring it up again. I just have to make sure. At the YMCA, you'll see the employees wear shirts that say, I am the YMCA. I was talking with Will the other day. It would be neat to give you guys shirts that say, I am the church. I'm always talking about, don't do church, be the church. Paul could have, without embarrassment, wore a shirt that said, I am Israel. He was a perfect representative of Israel. And God had not rejected him. So that's proof number one. Proof number two, that God has not rejected Israel is the idea of remnant. Have you heard of this idea of remnant before? Okay, Martha, Julia, let's do this. Remnant. Let's start in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee, the knee to Baal. So quick refresher. You may remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Uh, Israel had, had turned from God and was worshiping Baal, just a false god. Elijah says, this is ridiculous. There's one true God. Get all your prophets, come meet me. We'll both get a cow and we'll put it there and we'll ask our gods to light it on fire. And we'll see what happens. We'll see who's the true God. So 450 prophets of Baal come out and they put their cow over there and they're cutting themselves and they're crying out and they're praying with all their might all day. Nothing happens. And Elijah's taunting them. He's saying, you know, cry louder. Maybe your God just can't hear you. Maybe he's in the back of the house. Maybe he's sitting on the toilet. He actually says that. Nothing happens. Elijah has them dig a big ditch around his offering, and they fill it up with what They soak the offering with water and fill the ditch up with water. Fire flies down from heaven. Elijah, you know, all those 450 prophets of Baal are killed. Huge victory. And then the next scene... Jezebel, who's the king's wife, says, Elijah, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah freaks out, takes off running, scared, and basically goes into depression. Okay? That's the Cliff Notes version of what happens. So he, he's scared and he runs away. All these, you know, prophets that should have been godly men 
you know, tuned into God, had turned and had worshipped Baal. Elijah feels like he's the only one, the only faithful Israelite left. That's when he says, Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, am left, and they seek my life. And then God says to him, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. The idea of a remnant of faithful Israelites is present all the way back in, this was in 1 Kings, if you remember when we we were looking at the table of contents. I almost said the table of context. The table of contents. This idea of remnant is there as far back as that. That's why Paul put this scripture in here. There, There never was going to be a full entire physical nation of Israel that was going to be faithful to God. There was always going to be a remnant within that, the true Israel that we talked about a long time ago. So God has not rejected his people, Israel. Paul is proof and the remnant is proof. And if you're curious about that number 7,000, maybe that means something deep and important, but I don't know what it is at this point. I know that there's more than 7,000 now by the time Paul was writing this. In Acts, they talk about the many thousands who are coming to Christ. I know some people see numbers like that and they start wanting to get out their charts and start figuring this whole thing out. Maybe there's something to that. One thing I want to point out at this point, one of the things that led to the downfall of so many Israelites is they thought that they were in and good with God because they were Israelites. And they thought that God was just going to just grab everybody up, all of them, ignoring their individual hearts. But that's not how God works. Relationship with God is on an individual basis. One day, every one of us in this room will walk into heaven or hell as an individual. That you're a part of Doolin's Grove doesn't matter. That you're a part of your family doesn't matter. That you're an American doesn't matter. That you're part of the middle class doesn't matter. Where are you as an individual with Jesus? One of the best evangelistic conversations I've ever had with somebody, I called him up in the Walmart parking lot and I launched into the conversation with this phrase. And here's exactly how it sounded. Where yet with Jesus? Where yet with Jesus? Three words. Where yet with Jesus? That's Midland talk. (laughs) But I'm asking you now, where are you as an individual, with Jesus. And I know you're in your pew, and I know you're in this church. There are many Israelites that knew that they were part of Israel. But it was only a remnant that was true and faithful. So I need you to think clearly at this point. Where are you with Jesus? Okay, so we have our proof, in case any of you flat out didn't believe Paul that God has not rejected Israel. He's not rejected Israel. Paul is proof and the remnant is proof. And then Paul is relentless 
on this point that he brings up again in these last two verses. Verses uh, 5 and 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. He could have moved on to the next paragraph after that verse, but he stops everything and he says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And I feel like I've been harping this same point for a a year now in almost every sermon. But that's because Paul has been harping on this point in every passage now. And I wonder why. Why does he keep coming back to this? It's not by your works. It's by grace through faith. Not by your works. It's by grace through faith. What is it not by? Works. It's by grace through faith. There's a scene in a movie. I'm not even going to ask if you've seen it because I know you haven't. You guys don't watch movies. And there's a movie called Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell in it. And uh, Maggie Gillenthal, I think is her name. And he plays an IRS agent who has to go to this bakery and audit the bakery. And the lady that works there, Maggie Gillenthal, she paid some of her taxes, but she withheld like 22% of it because she knew that 22% of all of our tax money goes to these things that she didn't agree with. So she wrote a letter and says, I'm paying the taxes I agree with, but I'm not paying you this other 22%. So Will Farrell comes in to audit her and she just makes it really difficult on him. She has a really good filing system for her receipts, but she grabs it all and like wads it up and dumps it randomly into a box just to make it really hard for him to go through her receipts. Now he's clearly attracted to her. Obviously it's a movie, so there's got to be a love story. So at the end of this long day, there's a reason I'm telling you about this movie, Stranger Than Fiction. At the end of this long day, he comes down the stairs to leave and he's all disheveled and bloodshot eyes and tired. And this woman who's been cruel to him all day stops him and sits him down. Remember, she's a baker. She brings out a plate of cookies, chocolate chip cookies, right out of the oven. You know, chocolate chip cookies right out of the oven are really good, in case you guys weren't aware of that. You don't watch movies, maybe you don't watch watch cookies. Eat cookies or watch cookies. So she sits him down and she's been cruel to him all day, but here's this beautiful gesture, this beautiful, gracious gesture. And she sits down and just wants to have a conversation with him. Do something gracious for him. And she has to twist his arm, but he eats the cookies and they have, they connect. And it's beautiful, you know, because it's a love story. And it's a great moment. But then as they leave, he tries to pay for them. He says, let me pay you for the cookies. It constitutes a gift. I can't do it as an IRS agent. Let me pay for them. And you see how it just just, just destroys everything that they, they had in that moment of, of gracious interaction. See, every time we try to shift the basis of our relationship with God from grace to our works, we're doing the same thing that Will Ferrell did to the baker. We ruin it. We just ruin everything. God is trying to do this gracious thing for you. He's trying to give you righteousness in Jesus Christ. And we keep saying, let me pay you for that. I mean, I appreciate it. It's really nice of you. Let me clean up my life and pay you for that. 
Let me give a little extra to church and pay you for that. Let me get real involved in church programs to pay you for that. I'll witness to someone every day to pay you for that. I'll stop cussing in rush hour to pay you for that. With every attempt to pay God through our works, we just ruin it. We have this this percentage fallacy that, you know, God does a certain percent of the work needed to save us and we'll do the remaining percentage. So God maybe does, let's say, 80% of what's necessary to save us. But we have to supply the extra 20%. And Paul, over and over and over and over again in this book and in all of his letters, says, no, it's 100% God doing this for you. Note that this is not a contrast between two types of human effort. You know, often when he talks about this, he says, it's not by works, it's by faith. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying it's not by works, it's by grace. It's not two different types of human effort. The contrast is between human effort and divine effort. It's not by human effort. It's by God's effort. We are the unconscious guy who just got hit by a car. God is the paramedic. If you think you're helping him to help you, you're dreaming. You're not waking up saying, oh, God, here, let me put in the IV. I'll get that. He's doing the saving. The reason why he keeps bringing this up is because this is how Israel blew it. They knew so much, and yet they still thought it was because of their works. The reason I keep bringing it up to you, well, I have to. I'm a, I'm a servant to the book, to God, what he says in here. But I don't want us to blow it either. I've told you this many times, and I'll tell you again. In my position, I speak with people on their deathbeds. Most of the time, as I've tried to dig in and see, are these folks believers in Jesus Christ? What I get is not an answer that has anything to do with faith in God's grace through Jesus. It's an answer about their works. I've tried to be a good person. Well, that's not good enough. God is perfectly holy. Stop trying to be a good person and just, just receive it. He's trying to give it to you. I know some of you are thinking, I'm a Christian already. Stop harping on this. One day I might be sitting beside you at your deathbed. And I will have no regrets about how I taught you. Please think through this for yourself. Now, one last note about God's love that we learn in this passage. Because God's love is so gracious that we receive from him, we are freed to love other people that way. With gracious love, not a business contract love. I'll love you so long as you're nice to me. I'll love you so long as you don't gossip about me. I'll love you so long as you never hurt me. That's not godly love. That's a, basically a business contract. 
once we start to receive this gracious love from God through Jesus, we're free to love people in a supernatural way. So think about the people that you love. And I use air quotes over love because often what we call love is selfishness in disguise. We will, we will feel warmly towards someone so long as they are kind to us. It's really not love. Love is pouring out grace and blessing and favor and kindness toward people, whether they're reciprocating it or not. Now, you can't love that way. It's impossible unless you're plugged into God through Jesus Christ and you're receiving that kind of love from him. So think about those that you love. How much is your love toward them based on what they do for you or what they don't do to you? Think about your parents. How many of us are kind to our children until they get in our way and then we get frustrated? Think about your spouses. How many of you, you're okay being kind to your spouse until they do that stupid thing that they always do? Your friends, your coworkers. Think about your relationships. So God has not rejected Israel, but he's graciously chosen a remnant to enable to remain faithful. God's love is gracious and undeterred by rejection. So what I long to see happen in my life and in your lives is for us to receive this love in such a way that it tips us over to start loving others that way too. To be freed from trying to act righteous, look righteous, earn righteousness, and just to love people. That word grace, it has in it the idea of leaning toward someone, like leaning toward, extending toward someone. So think of yourself as a domino. We're all stacked up. You know, if just some of us receive that and start to lean toward the others, I mean, it could have a huge ripple effect in our church. If just some of us could start just fully, completely forgiving each other, fully, completely being gracious to each other, bending over backwards to bless each other. It could change everything. So that's my desire. That's my prayer. Let's bow together and pray for that right now. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're teaching us about your people, Israel. Um, I pray that you would, you would guide our thinking in these things. Uh, this is a big subject with lots of questions. Well, please guide our thinking, guard us from error. Lord, help us to avoid the mistake Paul is pointing out here. Help us to avoid trying to pay you or work for you to earn your blessing. Lord, help us to receive it. Help us to live in light of it. Help us to receive this love and then in turn give that love to other people. Please make it so. In Jesus' name, amen.